Please join me in welcoming Deborah Madison. Thank you so much. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here, and I love libraries. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I wasn't supposed to do something. Maybe that's still on. I don't know. Um, I, I do love libraries, and this town and this university has so many, and it's so great to be among at a table where librarians and people who love books are being honored. So um, I thank all of you uh, for including me tonight. It's very inspiring inspiring. So a few months ago, I was told about the library of Mrs. Kirshner um, and that it was given as a gift to, um, to, the, to the library. And this caught my attention, um, not only because of the generosity and the substantial size of the gift, but for other reasons too. One is I realized I have to figure out what I'm gonna do with my smaller library of books, but, but more it caught my attention because last year in Santa Fe where I live, um, there was an exhibit at the O'Keeffe Museum of Georgia O'Keeffe's cookbooks. Not all of them, just a, a little table of them. But I was invited to come view her entire collection um, later, which I did. And because I was already familiar with O'Keeffe's style of cooking um, and her tastes around food, I, I was even more curious about the books that fueled and inspired her cooking and way of eating. So um, one of the books I saw is a book I owned and had just been given. It's by Samuel Chamberlain, and it was printed in 1952, a book on French regional cooking, was, which was actually quite unusual for that time. It was given to me because of the gorgeous photographs and the ink drawings in that book. And it was on O'Keeffe's shelf, too. And it's also in the Kirshner collection. Um, but when I opened O'Keeffe's copy, I found that it had been a gift to her. And that was true of many of the books in her library. So I had to wonder which of the books were really close to the soul of her kitchen. And I believe they were the books that contained scraps of paper, marking recipes, shopping lists, little notes alongside the recipes as to their goodness or not, and that sort of thing. Um, I know, being a writer, and I, uh, that people um, come to you with their absolutely pristine books and say, I use it all the time. Um, <laughs> there seems to be a desire to keep books pristine. But personally, I think those books aren't nearly as interesting as the books that have pages that are stuck together with chocolate and notes scribbled in the margins and all that sort of thing. To me, cookbooks are basically very interactive. So since turning the pages of O'Keeffe's old, well-used books with a card and wearing gloves was tedious work, I decided I would just go to Abe's book and order some of these books for about a dollar and a half, and I could have them at home and read them at my, at my leisure. And I did that, and as I did so, um, I became acquainted with the books that had influenced um, the people before my generation of cooks that started in the 70s. And I could certainly be easily tempted to do the same thing with the Kirshner Library because there's so many books from the early half of the last century which have some interesting bearing on today's concerns and tastes around food and diet. I, I think we tend to think that 
Each generation has invented the world. Um, and we haven't, of course, but we do reshape the stuff of life to make it fit with the times we live in. So for example, I came across a book called Cook Right and Live Longer that was published in 1966 when I was still in college. But the chapter titles of this book are prescient of some of today's concerns and fixations. For example, what's wrong with civilized cooking? Okay, refined is a dirty word. Well, we have paleo diets, presumably less civilized. Um, whole foods sells a whole wheat carrot cake, less refined. Digestible appetizers, raw vegetable salads, smoothies, and vegetable juices. I would never serve those as appetizers, but I did find in the Kirshner collection um, a book published in 1962 called Eat Right, the No-Cook Way. Um, we also have the whole raw food fixation and, and everyone has their smoothies and their vegetable juices. So again, nothing has really changed that much. Another chapter was entitled Whole Grains for Health. Similarly, in the Kirshner collection, there's a book called Great Grains, Feed Your Family Right. Both books are concerned with rye and barley and buckwheat, rice bran, gluten flour, lima bean flour, all kinds of things, but not quinoa or teff or amaranth, or kamut, or spelt, or farro, or frika, because we didn't really know about those grains until fairly recently. Another chapter title was, let's use more organ meats, something that's making a return today with a nose to tail cooking. But I also found in Mrs. Kirshner's class notes references to heart and kidney. Again, you know, we're doing this over and over again. And finally, there's a chapter called close to my heart, whoops, I'm not supposed to do that, vegetables and how to cook them. And we're still for trying to figure out vegetables and how to cook them. It's right up my alley. So it's interesting, you know, nothing really changes, it just modifies a little bit. So in viewing the Kirshner collection, um, I found it very interesting to come across a book of dinners, uh, quick dinners by Madeline Kamen called Dinner Against the Clock. Now, I am a huge fan of Madeleine Kamen, and her book, When French Women Cook, really influenced me a lot. I didn't even know about Dinner Against the Clock. It was published in 1973, so I probably wouldn't have known about it, but I suspect it was also a first book for her. There was also a cookbook by Ansel Keys um, called Eat Well and Stay Well, published in 1959. Now, Ansel Keys, as many of you probably know, was the so-called father of the Mediterranean diet. And I was part of a think tank called Old Ways, and we studied that diet by going around Mediterranean countries for many, many trips. I had no idea he had written a cookbook. You know, we just didn't think of him that way. There's also a wonderful book in that collection that's dedicated to the school lunch, written in 1962. And it's very interesting to go back and see what school lunch was then and what we're struggling with today. Um, what else is there? Fearless Cooking for Men. Well, that was published in 1978, but just last week I got a book in the post called Save the Males about men cooking. <laughs> so it's a subject we're still addressing. And then, of course, there's a number of wonderful classical books. Um, it, this is a very marvelous, eclectic collection that's formed by somebody who really loved cookbooks of all stripes, whether they were 
pamphlets from a, a stove company or the marshmallow um, producer, as you probably saw back there. Um, community books, which are very interesting, or, or the classic cookbooks. Now, the meaning of this collection for me is that our personal libraries can illuminate and change our lives and those of others. And this is something I want to come back to, but I'm going to digress to my own experience with uh, cookbooks. As Linda said, I did grow up partly on a dairy farm in upstate New York, and then um, after that in a walnut orchard in California. My father was a botany professor at UC Davis. My mother was um, an artist and they were incredibly incompatible when it came to food. Um, my, my father's taste in food was very Midwestern. He was from Iowa, it was hearty, it was generous. My mother's was frugal beyond belief. They were both born on the same day and went through the depression, fine. So there's no, you can't blame it on the depression. Now, my mother wanted to improve her kids' lives by taking money out of an already meager food budget for music lessons and art lessons. So what happened? I became a chef. My, my brother became a farmer, and the rest of us go on in that direction. So I'm, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm, I know. I hope we weren't too much of a disappointment. Um, after college, I went to Japan for a summer, and then I came back to the Bay Area. Um, I really wanted to study Zen Buddhism, and there was this place called the San Francisco Zen Center. We had all um, bought a, a big building designed by Julia Morgan that was just absolutely exquisite. And um, at a house meeting one night, the need for someone to be in charge of the kitchen came up, and my hand shot up. I had absolutely no idea that I was interested. But the kitchen seemed like a good place for me to be. For one, it was around food. And I was a little insecure about food, about not having enough. And the other reason is, it just seemed to me that cooking was dynamic and interesting. Now, it didn't bother me that it was vegetarian. I didn't grow up eating a lot of meat. I wasn't a vegetarian, but I just wanted to cook. It, it just was fine. So the kitchen I inherited from the person before me was a macrobiotic kitchen. He was an incredibly good cook. And macrobiotics didn't really have to be connected to either Zen or to Buddhism. But in those counterculture days, the late 60s and early 70s, it was, for a while at least. When I began cooking, the image of vegetarian food was the dark and dreary one. I think probably some of you know it brown foods, heavy foods, strange foods. We had all these boxes and cans of grits and groats in our cupboard, and nobody knew how to use them. Nobody knew how to cook. Why would we? We weren't taught by our mothers. The food was sincere. It was definitely full of fiber and other virtues, but it just wasn't very good. And it wasn't pretty, nor was it recognizable. And also, living in a community where we had a lot of Japanese teachers meant that we ate foods like umeboshi plums, rice bran pickles, tofu, soba, seaweed, and other Japanese foods. Now, if you grew up around the Bay Area, this was not strange. You had eaten in Japanese restaurants. You knew these foods, and quite possibly, you loved them. But recently, a few weeks ago, I was having dinner with a man I was ordained with, and he suddenly said with great anger, I'll never forgive you for serving hijiki and carrots in the third bowl <laughs> during a sashin. Hijiki is a kind of seaweed. 
And I said, surely you haven't been thinking about this since 1971. And, you know, but it did make me realize something, and that is if you came to San Francisco from Kansas, or probably from Minneapolis in 1970, you probably had never had hijiki and a lot of other foods, and they would indeed be strange and a little bit upsetting. So one of my first goals was to make food that was familiar. Since we weren't here to be macrobiotic, we were here to study Buddhism. We lived together, and like a family, you want to eat together. So I corrupted what was a rather pure vegan diet, which would probably be enjoyed a lot today. Maybe it is there, I don't know. By introducing eggs, butter, cheese, milk, coffee, sugar, baking powder, olive oil to replace the rancid soy oil, white flour, and other such foods. Then that meant we could make pancakes that were light instead of like shoe leather. We could have cheese enchiladas and pizza. We could have cinnamon rolls on Sunday morning with coffee. But really what this meant is that students quit going down to Lum's, the Chinese cafe on the corner, for their all-American breakfast because they could have it here at home, minus the cigarettes and the bacon. So these new foods may not have been the most healthful by today's standards, but they did accomplish the goal of providing a table where people could and would sit down together. So the question I, in writing this, I was thinking, where did I look for inspiration? Because there was no Green's cookbook. There was no vegetarian cooking for everyone. Um, there were virtually no vegetarian cookie, uh, cookbooks then. Um, the health food books that appeared in the Kirchner Library and the O'Keeffe Collection were pretty much already out of print, and they weren't really considered collectibles, I don't think. There was the farm cookbook by, uh, written by Stephen Gaskin's class that had a very heavy emphasis on nutritional yeast and tofu. Um, there was the Ten Talents cookbook, Recipes by the Seventh-day Adventists, that had uh, an emphasis on nut cutlets and things like that. Then later, there would be Diet for a Small Planet in Laurel Kitchen. And although those foods were better, they they were still that kind of healthful, earnest, vegetarian variety. They weren't very sexy. They weren't very appealing. There were not really Italian cookbooks available then, which are such a great source of plant-based recipes. There was a paperback called Leaves of Our Tuscan Ancestors, which was billed as vegetarian, which, which sorry, but which wasn't really. Um, Italian was considered one cuisine, not many as it is now. The same was true for Mexican, Chinese, Greek, Indian, and so forth. And with few exceptions, books from these food cultures hadn't actually been written yet. So they weren't around to draw on. Excuse me. There was nothing to turn to that would move vegetarian meals forward to becoming food that a stranger would feel comfortable and even delighted to sit down to. So for inspiration, I turned to Gourmet Magazine. I used my very small stipend to get a subscription to that. Um, the Time Life International Cookbook, the French classics that are in the Kirchner Collection, Pella Prat, Escoffier, La Russe, and the more recent Julia Child's Art of French Cooking. My approach was to study these books very carefully and see if there were elements that I could pull out of a dish and set on its own. 
For example, French dishes that had the words a la forestière in them usually included mushrooms, even if they were a beef dish. So after looking at these recipes and many attempts, I figured out how to make something I call the mushroom ragu that I could serve with polenta rather than as a side to the beef that it was, it was paired with. Now, this is something we really take for granted today. And even yesterday at the campus club, I was served an absolutely delicious ragu, not a mushroom one, other vegetables. But in 1970, nobody did this. And not only that, people called them ragouts instead of ragus. So, you know, I had to go back to doing stews. Anyway, um, I got a lot of good ideas from Craig Claiborne's international collection, um, partly because some of the countries he included, in fact, most of them, had very, very vegetable-intensive cuisines. And the number of recipes were already worked out, such as spanakopita, curries, crepes, ratatouille. And they could, with some tweaking, become vegetarian main dishes. What's more, they could be paired with other foods that were in the same chapter so that there was some continuity when you made a menu you know, for a meal, which was important to me. Finally, a vegetarian cookbook appeared that did just what I was attempting to do and then took it further. And that was Anna Thomas's book, The Vegetarian Epicure. And when that book came out, it felt like Anna Thomas just dropped from the sky with a basket full of goodies. She didn't come to us by the way of any counterculture group. She just appeared via her books, which were vegetarian, but they weren't strange vegetarian. She was smart, she had traveled, she obviously liked to cook, she clearly loved to eat, and she happened to be vegetarian. She was a fun read. You could get on the boat right with her or join her in a favorite European cafe and taste what she had tasted. Her recipes were the ones we made for special occasions. They took a lot of time to make, and they used richer and more expensive ingredients than we were used to, but they were always hits. They never failed. As I poured through my little tiny cookbook collection in the early 1970s, I wasn't really I was looking for recipes, but more than that, I was hunting for pairings and combinations of foods and flavors, for sequences of steps, for basic techniques like the glazing and reducing. I didn't have a lot of experience eating out. Um, we didn't do that quite so much then. Um, and I didn't have a very well-formed palate. But later, as I began to eat out, I ate everything, including meat, because I wanted to see what normal food was like and what it felt like. It showed me saltiness, texture, balance, and harmony qualities that I strive to build into my own cooking. And since vegetables often tend to be sweet and lacking in anything that approaches the texture of muscle, it was a huge challenge to create vegetarian dishes that could get outside that sweet and soft range. And honestly, it still is a challenge for me. But gradually, the food changed. And July 4th, 1979, we opened Greens. I had been asked to be the chef, and it was a doozy of a job. 
um, I'm still trying to get over it. Uh, the restaurant was not a little 10, you know, 10 seat restaurant, which I was hoping. It seated 90 at a time. Um, the huge west wall of the restaurant was all glass and it faces the Golden Gate Bridge and the Marina Green. There was lots of free parking, which I'm sure helped draw our customers. Um, but by then, I had cooked at Chez Panisse, I had traveled to Europe, and I had a somewhat clearer vision of what was possible. And I, I think the food was pretty good, and it was pretty to look at, and it was light, and it was full of color and interesting shapes and varieties of vegetables. I, I really do feel that greens turned people's experience of vegetarian food upside down. Um, no one knew it could be delicious and familiar, but with a twist and exciting and, and also sufficient. But what really made the food good for me was not so much our cooking, which when I look back on it now seems a little dicey, but it was the produce we had to work with. The Zen Center had a farm called Green Gulch Farm in Marin County, and that was just 25 minutes from the restaurant. When I had been in Paris before it opened, I went to Villemarin. I ransacked their seed cabinets. I bought lots of seeds back. So we were actually able to serve many beautiful, beautiful lettuces, including the Marvel of Four Seasons, which was sort of the gateway heirloom lettuce, I think. Um, fingerling potatoes, arugula, uh, greens of all kinds, big brassicas, cauliflower, broccoli, and, and many, many kinds of fragrant herbs, golden beets, golden chard, red chard, all things that were so colorful and so lovely. Um, I drove into the restaurant every morning as soon as my car was loaded up with this. And during the trip, I sat enveloped in this incredible fragrance. Vegetables are actually very sweet smelling when they're freshly picked and, and put together. And during the trip, I thought about how I'd use this produce once I got to work. Now, this may not seem particularly unusual today. Um, this is the farm to table era, and this kind of cooking professes to be everywhere. And, and plenty of you have had the experience of walking into Trader Joe's or another store and picking up bags of fingerlings or German butterballs or arugula, mixed salad greens, olive oil, many choices of olive oil, packages of herbs, Cinderella pumpkins, you know, all of that and so forth. But at that time, none of that existed. It really didn't, unless you grew it yourself. And we did. So this was kind of a revolutionary moment. And it was a really exciting, exciting moment to be cooking, because we didn't really know what we were cooking with. You know, we, most of us hadn't seen it before either. Some of us thought this movement would not go very far. We thought maybe this is just going to remain a Berkeley and San Francisco phenomena. But of course, it didn't. The, movement, it, the food movement took off, and now we have good food pretty much everywhere. Um, I do want to mention that the Seed Savers Exchange uh, was about four years old then, so it was just at that point putting together its exchange of heirloom seeds that eventually um, came out into the world and it gave us the, the diversity that we now enjoy today. Um, we couldn't have guessed that when I was growing up. In fact, um, looking through uh, the Kirshner collection, especially in the older books, um, and in my own books too, 
very, very seldom is a recipe that uses a vegetable designating the variety of vegetable. You, beets are beets. You don't know if they're red, if they're cylindrical, if they're round, if they're kyogya. They're just beets because there was only probably about one kind that we commonly saw. Um, it's only today, I think, that this is that definition has become more um, expected and de rigueur. When I lived at Green Gulch Farm during the 70s, my house was an old bull shed. My first room was a horse stall, but then I graduated to the bull shed. And um, the shed had been converted to be a little bit more hospitable for human um, dwelling. And the yard was a sea of compacted earth that had been walked on for years by animals that weighed well over a ton. I had never thought to plant anything before, even though my father was a botanist and a really good gardener, my brother's a farmer and also a botanist. It, it never occurred to me until I looked at the sea of dirt, knowing it was going to be really slick the minute it rained, and it did rain. Um, and I thought, I have to plant something. And so I got a little sage plant, like that big, and a shovel would not break the earth. I had to go back and get a pickaxe and pick a little tiny hole and put that sage plant in. But with that gesture, I was suddenly hooked. I couldn't stop thinking about growing plants. That's all it took. And um, I, I quickly heard about a nursery in Sonoma County and went there the next weekend. And I didn't know, but it was their birthday. So they were offering champagne as we walked <laughs> into the door. So my first trip to a nursery was greeted with champagne. And kind of like the dog who remembers that the FedEx person always has a biscuit and never forgets, even though that person has gone on to some other job, I, I still kind of half expect a glass of champagne when I go to a movie, to a nursery. So to me, it was a very celebratory kind of thing. I was excited. And um, I used my tiny, my little stipend to um, to buy plants, but I could only afford the smallest ones. And my husband, I think, was either bemused or horrified that I was so obsessed um, on spending these few dollars on tiny plants that had a slim chance of surviving the quail that like to take a dust bath in their roots, um, or the uh, deer or the rabbits who are just as interested in their tops. Um, but I had a theory. And it was really an instinct at that time that even though this didn't make any sense, especially with me as a Zen student and also running greens and having no time and energy really except maybe a half an hour on a Sunday afternoon to dig a little patch that I might be able to plant something in, I felt I should pursue this because you never know when a passion might come back and take hold. And in fact, I didn't stay at Zen Center for that many, too many more years. I did live in Rome and studied gardens there for a year. Um, I did continue to plant plants and make a beautiful garden. And one day, where I live in Galisteo, I looked around me and I thought to myself, maybe I could grow some vegetables. And I did. And the effort of my garden over the years actually became the book Vegetable Literacy. But sustaining and feeding this new interest of mine, it was not done only through plants. It was also done through books. 
I'm kind of an old-fashioned book person, library person. I, I thank you for your talk about the other things the library does because I still think libraries should be quiet, you know, and I, I can't get used to the fact people just talk in normal voices and so forth. But anyway, I am a kind of a book person, and I happen to feel the same way about acquiring books. That is, if you're drawn to a book, and even if you don't know why or it doesn't seem to make sense, you should just go ahead and acquire it and even read it. And, but if you don't, that's okay, because you might read it sometime. And that has certainly happened to me. And I did acquire books on botany, on plants, on gardens, and so much so that at a certain point, I needed to add a huge, large bookshelf along one whole wall of my office. And I found myself giving away cookbooks to make room for even more plant and garden books. And one day, when I wasn't sure what my next step was, and this is fairly recently, I have to admit, I looked at my library and I realized that my interests had shifted. The landscape of my bookshelf, in fact, had changed. There were fewer cookbooks, there were more memoirs, there were more history books, and a lot of books on plants and gardens that I hadn't quite realized I had amassed because it was such a gradual process. It's a little like my teacher Suzuki Roshi used to say, when you walk in the fog, you get wet, but very slowly, very gradually. It's different from walking in the rain. And that's kind of what happened to my bookshelf. It gradually changed. Now, you might be thinking, shouldn't you know about yourself, like what your interests are? Isn't that pretty basic? And well, sometimes you don't know. And, and it's different for all of us and at different times. Some of us are, are, are always just feeling our way into the next thing in our lives. And if we discover certain new passions and interests in bookstores, and we buy those books and we take them home and read them and shelve them, then our library becomes a kind of a talking wall, something that tells us about ourselves and about who we are and what we're drawn to. And that's what happened to me. And Georgia O'Keeffe's library told me something about her. And Mrs. Kirshner's collection also says something about who she was. Books keep us alive. They feed us and others, which is another value of libraries and collections. I have a young niece who's very bright, very well educated. She does not want to own a single book. If she can download it, she much prefers to do that. I also will listen to books on CD when I'm driving, and I enjoy that a lot. The last one I listened to was 1493, a book about the Columbia, a Columbian Exchange. It's not the easiest book to listen to in traffic in strange cities in California. So when I got home, I bought a copy so that I could sit down and read it with a little bit more um, concentration. I couldn't have guessed from listening to it that it's fabulously illustrated. Um, the illustrations are interesting, they're compelling, but you miss that completely if all you're doing is hearing. So sitting down and going through a book, looking at the typeface, looking at illustrations is as much as about reading the information. Um, there, I can think of many books that are handsomely illustrated and sometimes they become the reason for owning a book. The Naming of Names by Anna Pavord was such a book with me. It has gorgeous plates on plants. The Chamberlain book that I mentioned earlier is another example. The black and white photographs and the pen and ink drawings show us an atmosphere that spoke to the author at that time. 
And the illustrations also show us a world that used to be and one that has changed. They alert us to our own history, where we come from, who we are, and what we've lost, and sometimes what we've gained. Recently, I found on my own library shelf a book about growing fruit in dry places. It wasn't written for today's new aridity. It was written in, 1930, in 1913. And I bought it because I loved the embossed cover. I, I love the way covers were made at that time. And it's been living in my office for about 20 years. Suddenly, it's relevant. Yes, UC Davis, where I grew up, you know, I'm sure there's tons of people doing research on growing fruit in dry climates. But, you know, this probably has some valuable information that we can use right now. Another book from the same year called Food and Flavor, again, bought for the cover, turns out to read a lot like Carlo Petrini, the founder of, of Slow Food. And there's even a dedication to Luther Burbank, the California plant breeder who gave us the Santa Rosa plum, the Shasta daisy, pluots, the Burbank russet potato, and wonderful, wonderful foods and flowers and fruits. Of course, Petrina's presentation is very today. It's very fresh and contemporary. And this has the English of a whole century ago. But the thoughts and concerns are pretty much the same, which brings me back to the beginning. Books I see, and especially this collection, is uh, the Kirshner Collection, are a record of our history. And that in libraries, these collections can tell us about our history, or its owner, or even about our current selves. The Kirshner Collection is about food and cooking. And because we all eat, it's especially relevant to all of us. But there is also information that students of other disciplines could unearth and use if they want to. Food is, after all, about life. Because it's such a vast collection, it has a great deal to say about the world we live in and where we came from. And after spending time in such a collection, it might just help us move forward into our futures while deepening our understanding of our past and also our present. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, if I can hear that. I know, it's time for coffee <laughs> and, and chatting. I have a big cookbook collection, but I find myself lazy. And if I want to cook something, I turn on my computer and mm -hmm. search. Do you have a comment on that? Yes, I do. <laughs> we all do that. So, um, I mean, my cookbooks are right there, just a few feet from my computer, and I do it too, but I never use what I find. Um, the reason why is because so often, first of all, you don't know who the author is when you're looking at recipes online. Um, a lot of times I find my recipes, but introductions are taken away, steps are short, shortened. They're not really how I write a recipe for somebody, you know, to cook with. And I'm sure that happens to other people as well, not just me. So 
if I'm cooking something I'm really unfamiliar with, I might go online to get a gist of it, but then that then I'll I'll, I'll take a little more time to to look in, in a cookbook or, or go to somebody specific online. But I, I think it's a shortcut that we're all, we all want to take, but, we, but you don't know the person, you don't know the voice, you don't know their experience, and then the people who judge the recipes, you don't know anything about them, you know. So as long as you keep all that in mind and it works for you, go ahead and do it. But you should keep that in mind, that it's, it's not the m most surefire way. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons people like cookbooks and write them and also read them is because they begin to like the voice of the person who's telling the story, or they've eaten at their restaurant, or they, they know something about them. Um, there's some kind of a connection. Um, even if they've never met the person, it doesn't matter. Um, what you have online is, is hard to connect to, unless you happen to know the person, I, I think. Yes. There's a microphone coming. You made me laugh because I became a vegetarian in 1969, and my first cookbook was Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit. Oh yeah, my Del mom Davis. had that. <laughs> and it was it was horrifying because yes, it is I horrible. was not only a vegetarian, but my mom made me eat Peppa. Remember Peppa? It was this mix of calcium, soy lecithin, calcium lactate, and nutritional yeast. Because it was the only way you could get vitamin B12. I don't know. I, I remember uh, going to a friend's house. Um, actually, she, th this girl who was my age, has moved to Minneapolis and has lived here a long time. And her mom used to feed us tiger's milk. Was and the, what I really wanted was a Coke. You know, I wanted a soft drink, and I wanted to go to somebody's house who watched American Bandstand because we didn't have a TV or Coke or any of that. You know, but we had lots of Tiger's milk. <laughs> so the other funny thing was it was really relief when Diet for a Small Planet came along. <laughs> from yes, Adele that's true. It's all about perspective. <laughs> So we have daughters getting married this summer. What cookbook should we buy them? Oh, heavens. <laughs> well, what are they interested in? <laughs> I mean, I've been very interested in cooking until now. <laughs> ah, well, you know, um, I actually think that the joy of cooking that came out um, the same year that Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone came out is pretty good. I mean, it, you know, if they, if they are eating meat, if they're, you know, omnivores, then get something that they can use, you know, very widely. And I, I think that that's a good book. If you're asking about my book, I can talk with you later because I've written all kinds of books. <laughs> but, you know, something really basic. I grew up on The Joy of Cooking. Other people grew up on Fanny Farmer. James Beard is great. I mean, he's classic American cooking. Those recipes work. They're very dated, but they still work. I'm not sure if there's anything wrong with being somewhat dated if it's good quality. Um, I, I would just like to say that I would like to promote this book since the author is being too modest about it because I, I've owned, um, I think this is the fourth volume I've owned of it. Of course, <laughs> it's the new version, but I'm on my third 
um, copy of uh, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone because I kept loaning it out to friends and never getting it back. But I will say that having used this, and I've got also an extensive uh, cookbook collection, um, that this is just a great all-round cookbook. And anyone who doesn't know how to cook, I, I send them to this cookbook. Because you can cook, you can add meat to a lot of things, but if you want a great cornbread recipe, it's in here. And a great pie crust recipe is in here. You can make a tart, you can make a salad, you can make cooked vegetables, everything is in there. So uh, I am not getting a kickback on this so far. Um, How do you know? But it's, it's a perfect all-round cookbook. So um, that, uh, the commercial segment is now finished. Thank you, that's very kind. <laughs> Um, could you speculate on why you think the convergence of people like you and Alice Waters and all that, that happened in Berkeley? Why do you think that all happened around the same time with the interest in food, this whole, this whole enterprise that you've been involved in that has eventually spread to other places? But it started there. And uh, what do you think the components were? <laughs> I, I, for many years, I uh, was the assistant to a writer who lived on the East Coast on Long Island in Old Westbury. And she knew people like Jock Whitney. And, and they used to say things like, well, you know, if you tip the United States, all the loose nuts go to the West. <laughs> so I, th I think that it, there's something um, it, in it that's true about that. I mean, the West does seem to attract a kind of feeling of adventure, you know. Um, lots of things happened in the West, you know, in Berkeley especially, the free speech movement, you know, in the 60s, Mario Savio, you know, a lot happened. Um, why did it happen there? Well, I, I think probably it was a time, you know, um, all of us who worked at Chez Panisse, nobody had gone to cooking school. You know, you had an anthropologist, you had an architect, you had a this, you had a that. You know, people had gotten training in something else, but then somehow I think there was a kind of dissatisfaction in the careers that people chose or they didn't want to be in academia. I, I don't know, I mean, because I was just there um, doing it. But now you have all, a lot of young people who are interested in farming you know, and social justice around food. And we didn't have, have that so much then. Um, so it's kind of shifted one more time. And some people speculate that futures look kind of grim for young people. Not everyone's gonna graduate college and go on and get a great job that they love. I don't know, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I should just say, if I don't know, I'll try not to answer it. <laughs> but if any of you have ideas about it, I, I'd like to have that conversation. Yes, James. Okay. But I, wanna, I thank you for. I um, have an idea. Oh, okay, just, Jim. Just, and, and I'd like you to react to it. But it's so interesting. You were at the Zen Center, none of which I knew, but the Zen Center was the first in the United States, San Francisco Zen Center, and that can't toward Asia which has a different kind of cooking versus the cant toward Europe on the East Coast. And I think that might have been a factor. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, we, I'll tell you about the Zen Center. If you take away movies and sex and lots of other good things like that, and you're left with cooking, you know? You're left with food. So everybody wanted to cook, you know? Even though they couldn't do it, they wanted to eat. 
<laughs> That's a wonderful Thank you. <laughs> uh, don't go away. Uh, Deborah, stay here one sec. Uh, what a wonderful presentation and, and, a, and a celebration, too, of, of cookbooks that we have and that have been part of your experience. A little something for you to remember us by. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, thank you. One more thing for your carry-on bag. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I have one request for you yes. to help me. Okay. Um, we have uh, the names of all of you in this basket, and she is going to, without looking, pick one for a <laughs> copy of her cookbook. Just one. Okay. And we have here Mike Price. Uh, oh. <laughs> Wendy, I just want to say that Mr. Price and his wife came here from Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, oh uh, my goodness. Been vegetarians for many years and brought their Fabulous seven to daughter. travel all the way from the Badger State and the cheese <laughs> capital to, uh, so. to join us this evening. That's wonderful. Uh, one more thing, if I could ask Karen Kep, our new president, to come and say a very short words uh, to close us out for this evening. And while she's making her way up here, I will sh share with you that there are copies of uh, Deborah's books uh, for purchase, and also she's willing to autograph if you're interested in that as well. Karen? I know you have all had your bodies, minds, and hearts fed wonderfully tonight. Um, thank you so much to Deborah. Thank you, Wendy, for everything you do for the library day in and day out. Um, my first official act as president of the Friends, I just want to invite you to come and enjoy each other's company and the wonderful ideas and activities of the Friends all season long next year, starting with uh, Craig Packer in the fall, ending with Kevin Kling in the spring. We have a great series of events. Please come. Thank you again. <laughs>